This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Happy to be here uh, back at CIIS, back at, in San Francisco. You're having unusually good weather, which is, uh, which is always good. So uh, I'm going to talk about this. Uh, I may get confused as this goes on and I'll lose track, but hopefully uh, you'll bring me back. So my talk tonight is... After the revolution, is there a future for natural psychedelics? And I want to try to address this issue as, as best we can. So I should say a bit about the Hefter Research Institute, uh, which is a nonprofit that has been working to get mostly psilocybin. Their, their concentration has been on psilocybin, but bring psilocybin into clinical use, and they've been sort of leading the charge on that uh, in the same way that MAPS has, has uh, done much the same thing for MDMA. But these two organizations working uh, over the last few decades, really since the early 90s, have deserved some credit, I guess you could say, for almost making psychedelics respectable again. Uh, through rigorous science. In our society, people respect good science. And both uh, the Hefter Research Institute and MAPS has been very good in finding the right investigators uh, to uh, carry out these investigations. So now, psychedelics are again respectable and are poised to become an alternative therapy, maybe replacing uh, some of the therapies that are not so effective. So the Hefter Research Institute is named after Arthur Hefter. Uh, when we founded the organization, we felt that Arthur uh, exemplified the kind of spirit of scientific curiosity and exploration that we wanted to identify ourselves with. How many in this audience know who Arthur Hefter was? That's just a sign of how poor our publicity is for the Hefter Research Institute. <laughs> yeah, we're lousy at publicity. MAPS is very good. Well, Arthur Hefter was a pharmacologist and a chemist and a kind of a renaissance man at the end of the 19th century. And his claim to fame, or one among many, but the one that we honor him for, is that Arthur Hefter is the first person to isolate mescaline from the peyote cactus and demonstrate that that was the major active principle. Well, how did he demonstrate it? Of course, he took it himself. You know, it's the only way to do it, right? And back in those days, this was just what's done, what was done. Today, it would be frowned on, but maybe that's gonna change as we move into this psychedelic era. So one of the uh, giants, if you wanna say that, of psychedelic research, Stan Groff, who has taught at CIIS, and many of you probably know, has said the potential significance of LSD and other psychedelics for psychiatry and psychology is comparable to the value of the microscope the microscope has for biology or the telescope for astronomy. And I think that's really true. By banning psychedelic research, we have not only given up the study of an interesting drug or group of substances, but also abandoned one of the most promising approaches to the understanding of, hum of the human mind and consciousness. And again, I think obviously true, and any of you that are familiar personally with psychedelics, I think would probably have to agree with this. 
So science, science is what's making psychedelics respectable again, although why they haven't always been respectable, I don't know. But, but the science can kind of be uh, divided into two parts. One is basic research. Psychedelics are tremendous tools for understanding basic neuroscience, how the mind works, the mind-body problem, the processes of perception and cognition. All of these things, psychedelics are molecular probes for understanding the mind and consciousness and, of course, the mind-brain problem, which is still one of the major challenges for the, for the 21st century neuroscience. And out of this research, as a side effect, almost as a side benefit, different therapeutic applications have emerged, and it appears that psychedelics are the most promising class of, of medicines for various intractable mental disorders which, for which there are not very good treatments, such as PTSD, uh, existential anxiety and cancer and terminal illnesses, addictions, intractable depression, spirituality and mystical experience. What is that going on this list? That's not a disorder. <laughs> or maybe it is, but it's important to people. Obsessive compulsive disorder, eating disorders, cluster headaches. This is only a partial list of what they're now thinking, researchers are now thinking psychedelics may be useful for. Well, the revolution, the psychedelic revolution is actually well underway. The first MAPS sponsored, how many of you know about MAPS? Everybody. <laughs> Until I walked into the room today, how many knew about the Hefter Research Institute? Oh, all right, a few, a few. We're sort of getting our message out, yeah. Well, the MAPS deserves credit for organizing these rather significant uh, conferences called Psychedelic Science. The first one was Psychedelic Science 2010. It was held in San Jose. It attracted about 800 people. Respectable turnout, but not spectacular. And then the second one in 2013 had about 2,000 attendees, and three years later in 2017, the third Psychedelic Science Conference attracted more than 3,000 attendees. So this alone is a measure of the great interest uh, in psychedelics. But not only that, these, these conferences brought a degree of scientific rigor to the subject that was not seen before. This was not just a bunch of stoners sharing strange dope tales. There was actual science being presented at these conferences, sometimes very uh, impressive conferences. So these conferences demonstrated that psychedelics do have therapeutic value, but also demonstrated and did not neglect the important role that they have in the culture and spiritual practices of indigenous cultures, and to a certain degree, in our own culture. You know, over the last four decades, our own society has learned how to use psychedelics in a way that is constructive, maximizes the benefit, and minimizes the harm. And this is what we're shooting for, right? So a big, another big milestone here in the sort of coming out of psychedelics, if you, want to, uh, if you want to put it that way, is Michael Pollan's book, which was published uh, in uh, 2018, I believe it was. And this was a wonderful introduction to psychedelics for people who were not really that familiar with psychedelics. It was a good introduction if you're, if you're fascinated, curious, but not really... Uh, experienced. I mean, you can have some experience, but Michael Pollan, who, how many of you have read Michael Pollan's book? Okay, a lot, a lot. Gosh, I wish my book sold that much. <laughs> of course, he, he had a long track record, right? And I've always admired his writing about food, you know, food and plants. You'd think that food would not be such, such a fascinating subject. Michael was able to make it 
fascinating and bring all sorts of things into it, and including coevolution of humans and food plants. We'll talk a little later about coevolution and humans and psychedelics plan. So uh, Michael's book really changed the tone of the public conversation. Before that, public discussions in the media or whatever about psychedelics were distinctly negative. It was all about, you know, these things are dangerous, these things are gonna drive you crazy, they're highly illegal, you know, and, and of those three things, only the last one is really true. And it's still true, unfortunately. But most of the educated public, now when they think about psychedelics, they use it, they view it through a different lens, if they're concerned about it at all. You know, they view them as interesting, not so scary, potentially beneficial. And for many, Pollard's book was an incentive to look into psychedelics themselves, perhaps, you know, the old hands-on kind of bioassay, despite the real legal risks and, and, of course, the number of people who have had personal experiences now with psychedelics has grown over decades. So psychedelics have been present in our society at some level for, for quite a long time. Uh, and I could say various things about Michael's book. I, I, I really enjoyed it. One thing that was disappointing to me about it was that it was almost entirely focused on psilocybin, which makes sense because psilocybin's getting all the intention. Almost nothing was said in his book about ayahuasca, which disappointed me, perhaps because I've devoted my life to ayahuasca, but also I think it was an, I think it was an oversight because I think ayahuasca as well as psilocybin is touching many lives these days and uh, in a different context. And I, I was a bit disappointed that Michael really kind of glossed over it. I'm not sure why. Still, I credit him for changing the public conversation about this. And the public conversation has been changed to the extent that these research programs, which have been kind of plugging along, doing the best they can on very limited budgets, are now attracting a lot of support. And philanthropists are coming forward, and as most of you know, if you read, read the newspaper, Roland Griffith's program at Johns Hopkins just received a $17 million grant from, two, from Tim Ferriss and other donors and uh, this is for the advancement of psychedelic science. And Dr. David Nutt's research program in, at the uh, University College, Imperial College in London, also received a $3.5 million grant last year. So for the first time, psychedelic science on the research side is actually well-funded. You know, and we don't have to go around begging for people to give money to support this. People get the message. And rest assured, we will continue to go around and beg for money because that's what nonprofits do. And $17 million is a lot of money, but the work is, you know, will require more than that. So interestingly now, we're looking at the beginning of the sort of, I guess, corporatization, you could call it, maybe pharmaceuticalization of psychedelics. Um, there are two institutes that have grown up recently. One is Compass, Compass Pathways, and they are based in the UK and the EU. And their mission is to develop clinical grade psilocybin and move it through the regulatory process so that it will be available to to patients in a clinical setting. The one in the States that's doing the similar thing is called the USONA Institute. And that sort of grew out of the Hefter uh, research. I mean, Hefter still exists, but USONA is taking the lead as far as getting it approved, getting psilocybin approved for, for clinical use. And so 
it's really remarkable that within just the last few, year, few, few years, psychedelics have gone from being prohibited and reviled as dangerous drugs without any possible medical applications to now being viewed as a disruptive force that may well transform psychiatric medicine. And that is sorely needed, my friends. So I want to go briefly over what you might call the materia medica of a few of these, just to kind of orient the conversation. Right now, all the interest, pretty much all of the interest as far as moving psychedelics into the, the realm of approval as clinical medicines is focused on either MDMA or psilocybin. MDMA, of course, is known as ecstasy or molly. It's 3,4-methylene-dioxy-methamphetamine. It's not really a psychedelic. It actually works presynaptically. It works on serotonin release in presynaptic neurons. But it is psychoactive, and it seems to be particularly useful for treating PTSD. Now, psilocybin is obviously the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. It has also been clinically investigated for a wider range of disorders. And as I mentioned, it's an excellent molecular probe to study spiritual or mystical experiences. Spiritual or mystical experiences is not a mental disorder, but it is, it is for many people, a valuable experience. And psilocybin seems to be able to elicit this under the right circumstance. So there's a very strong association between meaningful spiritual experiences and mental healing. You can't really separate them. Medicine would like to, but it doesn't. That's the problem with reductionist medicine. So this is an important aspect of psilocybin's therapeutic profile, the fact that it can elicit what Roland Griffith calls, he doesn't like to use the word mystical experiences, so he calls them profoundly, personally meaningful experiences. Okay, well that's fine. That doesn't offend any religion or anything. So both of these are very close uh, to being approved as clinical medicines. How close? Well, it's not clear, but maybe a five-year time frame. Maybe less, hard to say. So ecstasy is, uh, as I say, this is just a picture of the molecule. One way that you can track the development of these substances in the clinical, uh, you know, on their path to approval is to look at the website clinicaltrials.gov, clinicaltrials.gov. One of the few things our government does that's worth the money, the clinicaltrials.gov is a place you can go to find the uh, stage and development of any drug that's under FDA-approved protocols. Very few are psychedelics, obviously, cancer drugs, heart drugs, all of these things. But if you search on psilocybin or ecstasy or MDMA, it comes up, and you see that there have been a number of clinical studies uh, for MDMA, mostly with, for post-traumatic stress disorders, but also for substance-related disorders, anxiety disorders, mood disorders, autism even, uh, depressive disorders, neurotoxicity syndromes, addictive behaviors, and miscellaneous conditions, whatever that might be. And in the case of psilocybin, psilocybin is almost the perfect clinical psychedelic. Um, Psilocybin and psilocin. Psilocybin is converted to psilocin in the body. Psilocin is the active form of psilocybin. Both of these molecularly are close analogs of the neurotransmitter, serotonin. And because they are, they're non-toxic, they're orally active, they're completely compatible with human metabolism and neurochemistry. And as a result, they can be given to people who are in a fairly fragile state of health and they can benefit from that, and it's not hazardous. So uh, psilocybin has kind of emerged as the psychedelic of choice, you know, for the clinical, for the clinical studies. And psilocybin has also accumulated a respectable number of 
of uh, clinical studies. And again, you can read up in these, on these in detail if you want and find out what's been done, what's recruiting, what is planned, which might be useful if you're actually looking for to enroll in a clinical study for yourself or perhaps a friend with problems. Clinicaltrials.gov is the first place to go to find out where you might get enrolled into a clinical study with psilocybin or MDMA. And psilocybin has also been looked at primarily for depressive disorders, for OCD, obsessive compulsive disorders, spiritual practices, cancer, end of life anxiety, anorexia, basic neuroscience, pharmacokinetics has been done as part of the uh, approval process. You have to do pharmacokinetics which is essentially a measurement of how the drug is absorbed, distributed in the body, and then eliminated. Uh, shows promise for treating migraines. Shows spectacular results in a smoking cessation protocol, which Matt Johnson at Johns Hopkins uh, is the pioneer for that. And now with this grant, he'll be able to move that forward. Right there, can you imagine? I'm not going to talk about Matt's study very much, but in his preliminary study with uh, long-term three-pack-a-day smokers, 80% of the study cohort were tobacco-free six months after their first and second sessions of psilocybin. So, So this just blows everything else away when it comes to treatments for tobacco addiction. We expect it will be similarly uh, efficacious for other kinds of addiction. And when you think about the impact that tobacco-related diseases have on medicine, I mean, this is a gift, a gift from nature, and hopefully we'll be able to use it. Um, so cocaine dependence, alcohol dependence, and... Parkinson's disease psychosis, I'm not sure what that is, but uh, there are clinical studies going on with all of these things with uh, psilocybin. Well, of course, psychedelics are not new. They've been around for thousands of years, and they have been used in indigenous cultures, and they've been revered in those cultures as sacraments, as integral to their religious and spiritual practices. And as uh, Roland Griffith and his group have shown, the classical psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin and DMT are the best pharmacological model for transcendent or, or mystical experiences. This is huge, actually. Now it's possible to study the neuroscience of transcendence using psychedelics as pharmacological probes in rigorously designed clinical experiments. So mystical experiences are usually not something that we you know, welcome science coming and dissecting and tearing apart because you know, that's just not right. You know? But it turns out that you can study the mystical experiences with psychedelics, something that uh, many people would engage in spiritual practices for, you know, many, many decades to, in the hopes that they might be blessed or granted a mystical experience. You know, this, this is sort of the goal. Well, now pretty much any schmuck can take 25 milligrams of psilocybin and in the right circumstances have if, you know, if it's not a mystical experience, it'll do till one gets here, right? I mean, it looks like a mystical experience. And, you know, so that's interesting that you can bring this actually into the laboratory and study it as an aspect of neuroscience. And, of course, in, in uh, Roland's study, they had 24 uh, subjects initially. They've done many other follow-up studies since then. But in this initial study, 15% rated it as the single most meaningful experience of their lives, while nearly 60% rated it as among the top five 
most meaningful experiences of their lives. And that's pretty interesting. I mean, if you had a drug that reliably induced the most meaningful experience of your life, you'd probably want to take that drug, right? <laughs> and I think a lot of pharmaceutical companies would like to bring, make it easier for you to take that drug. Or maybe they don't really want you to have mystical experiences because you know, one, of the, one of the problems with taking psychedelics and, and using psychedelics and therapy is you only need to do it a few times. You know, maybe once in a lifetime, maybe a few times in a lifetime. I mean, some of us you know, are harder headed. It's harder for us to get the message. So you know, we keep taking them. But a lot of people, they take them and they say, okay, one and done, I get it, I understand, and it's changed my life. How do you make a pharmaceutical out of that? You know, pharmaceutical companies want things that you take, you know, twice a day for the rest of your life, you know? So, uh, I don't know, but nonetheless, the investment community is, uh, you know, charging ahead, and we'll see how that works out. So, just a little cultural commentary here. What is the alternate reality salad made with mushrooms from the chef's own garden? So let's get back to Materia Medica. I want to uh, just return to these to kind of, kind of round out this discussion of Materia Medica because <clears throat> right now all of the excitement, all of the focus is on psilocybin and MDMA. But there are other substance, substances that may be the second phase of, of clinical development and eventual commercialization. Obviously, one of them is LSD. Many people are interested in bringing LSD back into the clinic and making it respectable again. And because it's been studied really since the 50s, there are far more clinical studies on LSD that have been done with psilocybin or MDMA or any of these others. Not necessarily rigorous, well-designed clinical studies, but they do qualify as clinical studies. So, uh, you know, enough information was accumulated to show that LSD is, yes, one of these major classical psychedelics that should be investigated. What about mescaline, the one below there? Of course, we know it comes from the peyote cactus as well as other cacti, very important in indigenous uh, spiritual traditions, and very few clinical studies, actually, which is surprising considering how long it's been around and how important it is. Most of the clinical studies uh, have been observational, often observational of its use among uh, indigenous people. Um, but there's not a lot of clinical work on, on mescaline, nor is there a lot of clinical work on the simple tryptamines, which also are another way that many people come to psychedelics for the first time. We have DMT, and then dimethyltryptamine, it's a classic psychedelic, a 5-HT serotonin 2A agonist. And there's one clinical trial in clinicaltrials.gov. Of course, the main clinical uh, investigation of DMT was Rick Strassman's work in the early 90s. And that really kind of began to open the door a little bit on psychedelic research. So he deserves credit for that, for kind of, you know, beginning to, uh, you know, elicit this process of research that uh, now has become much more robust. Then there's 5-methoxy-DMT, uh, which is very close cogener, congener to DMT. 5-methoxy, also a 2A agonist. And this is the, the toad medicine. This is... Uh, um, a lot of people are getting it through smoking the, uh, the venom of the uh, Sonoran Desert toad. Um, that seems to be the way it comes. The Sonoran Desert toad, Bufo alvarius, the genus Bufo in the toads is a very big genus. Bufo alvarius, the Sonoran Desert toad, is the only one apparently that where most of them have bufotenine, bufotenine in the venom, this one happens to have 5-methoxy-DMT in the venom. And it is, indeed, when it's smoked, it's a very potent, uh, very short-acting psychedelic. That's, that's what 
is uh, most remarkable about these, these uh, DMT and 5-methoxy-DMT. They're very short-acting. They tend not to be orally active. Um, okay, here are a couple of outliers in some ways, uh, but worth mentioning because they will be getting attention you know, in, in the near future. Um, ibogaine is one of them. It's from the African shrub, Tabernantha iboga. It's used uh, traditionally by the Bwiti people and uh, as an initiation, initiation medicine. They consume adolescents who are on the cusp of adulthood, both men and women, will consume almost legal, lethal amounts of iboga root, chewing iboga root. And then they will have a, it's not exactly a psychedelic, but it, it, it produces a dreamlike state in which they get to reconnect with their ancestors. This is, this is the indigenous belief systems that Iboga opens the portal to the ancestors and young people get to learn the, the wisdom of their culture. And it turns out on the medical side, Ibogaine is very effective for treating addictions, especially opiate addictions. And the similar mechanism seems to be involved where an addict, uh, they're having ibogaine treatment, obviously they're probably in a state of life crisis, uh, but they uh, take ibogaine in a clinical setting and very often they are presented with a life review movie, kind of a review of where they're at, what's happened to them existentially, where they're headed if they don't change their, their trajectory, and it, it takes away the craving. That's the thing. No other psychedelic or any other thing, as far as I know, temporarily removes the craving. So the therapeutic aspect of Ibogaine is that it gives people an opportunity to have this revelatory experience, but then we often say the important stuff happens after the session. And that's very true of Ibogaine. People have to take what they've learned, interiorize it, and make changes in their lives. If they go back to their old neighborhood, their old buddies, their old habits, it's not gonna work. But when, when uh, you know, what happens after the session is thoughtfully planned, it can be a remarkable life changer for many people. Now, the compound on the bottom there, Salvinorin A from the Mexican mint, this is a diterpene. So unlike any of these other things, it contains no, no nitrogen. Um, and it's not clear whether it has a clinical application or not. It's, a very, it's not a psychedelic. It's a very selective and potent kappa opiate agonist. There are three types of opiate receptors, delta, mu, and kappa, and salvinorin A interacts only with the kappa receptor and no other receptor. This is very remarkable for any, any medicine. Most of these drugs interact with multiple receptors. Um, salvinorin A hits the kappa opiate receptor with laser-like focus and activates nothing else. Of course, a downside of the Salvadoran sal smoking salvia leaf, often is how it's done, is that the experiences are often quite dysphoric for many people, um, but maybe there's value in that. I don't know. Um, maybe there will be uh, applications found for Salvadoran. I don't think it's going to happen immediately, but it may happen. And then we come to ayahuasca, and ayahuasca is uh, a wild card in almost every respect. Uh, it's not likely to be entered into any clinical trials very soon. Um, it's too much of a plant. You know, it's very difficult to stuff it into this, into this mold. You can't synthesize it. There have been attempts to combine the active ingredients, and you know this is a combination of a plant containing DMT, which is not orally active, prepared together with a plant that contains a group of alkaloids called beta-carbolines, which are monoamine oxidase inhibitors, so they inhibit the enzyme that breaks down DMT in the gut and allows it to become orally active. 
And ayahuasca is at the center of shamanic practices in South America, in the Amazon basin specifically. And many people are now traveling to the Amazon or to Peru or other countries in this phenomenon of ayahuasca tourism. People are curious. They want to have this ayahuasca experience in a shamanic and traditional setting. So ayahuasca is touching many lives through that, through that mechanisms. But as I say, it, its use as a clinically approved uh, therapy is probably somewhat in, in the future. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing. I think maybe ayahuasca should be its own thing. I mean, but then I'm, I'm biased, you know, about that. Um, currently, in the United States, ayahuasca use is permitted with, for, by two Brazilian churches. One is called the UDV, the Unhão de Vegetal. The other one is called the Santo Daime. These religions use ayahuasca as a sacrament. They regard it more as a sacrament than a medicine. Of course, they can't overlook the fact that it's medicinal. And uh, they are permitted to use it by Supreme Court decisions that were made in the mid-2000s under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The UDV first and then later Santo Daime was approved for religious use. So if you are interested in forming a relationship with ayahuasca in the States, you can think about join, joining one of these churches. But then if you don't like churches, you know, you're, I don't know, you're out of luck, I guess. <laughs> you can go to Peru. Uh, the legal situation in, in Peru is quite different. Ayahuasca is not only legal, but it has been declared a national patrimony and of course, in North America and Europe, un unsanctioned use of ayahuasca is also very common. And there are, in almost every community, rustic, maybe some of them not so rustic, but retreat centers that offer ayahuasca as part of the menu. Um, you know, but they are underground. They are technically illegal. Um, anyway. Um, now, ayahuasca, you know, there have been clinical studies, but not really formal studies, uh, not studies about therapeutic applications. So far, mostly studies about how does it work? You know, what is the, what's the neurophysiology? What is the, what is the experience? What is the receptor profile? In fact, there's a gentleman here in the audience from CIIS, one of the pioneering researchers on the neuroscience of ayahuasca, Dr. Frank Eichenhofer, who has been to both Peru and Brazil a number of times doing uh, electroencephalography uh, with ayahuasca and different uh, neuroimaging um, uh, kinds of, uh, kind of measurements. So uh, ayahuasca is another one that may or may not be, it, it's been commercialized, but it's been commercialized as a plant, you know, or as a plant complex. Uh, there are no uh, clinical trials, nothing, you won't find anything in clinicaltrials.gov, but if you search PubMed, which is another wonderful resource, PubMed, from the National Library of Medicine, another good use of government funds, because this is the biomedical database. First place you go if you want to know the state of the art for anything in biomedicine and the life sciences. If you do uh, a search on ayahuasca, you'll come up with uh, about, uh, the, the number keeps growing, but it's about 160 peer-reviewed papers. And out of that, about a, uh, there are about 21 of these more or less quasi-clinical uh, trials. So, seems like the psychedelic revolution has succeeded. What we all hoped for, right? The therapeutic potential of psychedelics has been accepted by the biomedical community, perhaps grudgingly accepted, but accepted nonetheless. Psychedelics are shown to be safe and effective for treating 
certain mental disorders. Two of them are expected to receive FDA approval for clinical use within the next one to three years. You know which two those are, psilocybin and MDMA. So this success has attracted significant financial support for research and also pharmaceutical development. You know, potential commercialization as uh, pharmaceutical entities. Yet, troubling questions remain. Psychedelics are transitioning now into respectability. They're transitioning from their former status as prohibited substances without any possible medical or therapeutic value or really any virtue at all. You know, now they're hailed as the greatest breakthrough in psychiatric medicine since the discovery of Prozac. Maybe they are and maybe they're not. You know, it's encouraging given the intractability of a lot of mental disorders, given the ineffectiveness of conventional treatments, conventional clinical treatments, the, the ineffectiveness of the uh, psychopharmaceutical um, pharmacopoeia that's applied to this. If you look at the literature, Prozac, other antidepressants are certainly overused, and their effectiveness is often not that great. You know, the SSRIs are often barely different than placebo for treating conditions like, like depression. But so a lot of people are excited about psychedelics being accepted into biomedicine. But it's a two-edged sword, and there are many pitfalls to this, especially when it comes to the commercialization and the making of these medicines into pharmaceuticals. And uh, I think we have to think about this. I think we have to proceed mindfully because this is maybe not the way that we should go. And I will readily admit that I'm biased. I mean, I'm, I'm a plant guy. I've spent all my life studying natural psychedelics. And uh, I think it's important to keep our relationship to natural psychedelics, even though clinical treatment might be available to people in a few years using a synthetic like psilocybin or MDMA. But psychedelics are so much more than that. You cannot reduce them to a pharmaceutical. They have too many connections to who we are as a species, to the planet, to the community of sentient species, to indigenous cultures, all of these things, you can't really reduce psychedelics to just a crystal in a capsule. I think it's important to remember that they have connections on many other levels, both physical and metaphysical. Natural psychedelics, which is how most people are getting psychedelics these days, connects us to our culture. They connect us to coevolution with the community of sentient species. They connect us to nature itself. In fact, for many people, the main takeaway lesson of taking psychedelics, particularly ayahuasca or mushrooms, in a natural setting is it, re it reframes our understanding of our relationship to nature. And this has to happen if we're going to deal with the existential crisis that we face on this planet. If you turn psychedelics into a crystal in a capsule and sort of forget about all this, these other connections, I think that's the wrong approach. Then they become just another drug. Psychedelics are protected by their very nature from being just another drug. This is not something that you take for a headache or something. This is not something you can take and say, take two and call me in the morning. You can't call anybody in the morning. You have to take it in a situation where the therapist is involved in the process if you have a therapist or the shaman or whoever is helping, helping you through it and you need help. 
It is, it is generally, I mean, for, there are exceptions. Some people can take psychedelics on their own, and if you get experience, that's fine. You, you know, you get, uh, you know, you get, you learn how to navigate, but initially, these happen in social situations, like ayahuasca ceremonies. And uh, we should hesitate before we rip psychedelics out of this context. Every living thing on this planet is part of this mega ecosystem that we call the biosphere. The stability and functions of the biosphere are maintained and mediated by signal transduction processes. Plants play an outsized role in this process. Plants are the master weavers of the biospheric web because of their chemical ingenuity. All plants are great chemists. And the reason they are is because they have mastered this process of photosynthesis. They're able to take, make an enormous variety of organic compounds because they figured out how to take carbon dioxide, water, and turn that and use that to create, and sunlight, and use that to create complex organic molecules. And it's important that they're able to do that because one of the benefits of this is the plants are the main thing that are sequestering carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. They're sequestering it into their, bio, into their own biomass. So this is convenient and this is critical and this is one thing we're put one of many of the things that are keeping the biosphere stable that we're putting a lot of pressure on right now. We are busily destabilizing these processes. The other useful, interesting, and convenient for us, all of us who are not plants, is that one of the byproducts of photosynthesis happens to be oxygen. And we, have to need, we happen to need oxygen because we breathe it. So plants have become virtuoso chemists. And what they do, what do they do with all this chemistry? They produce a great variety of so-called secondary compounds. They're not really secondary compounds, but they're not primary. They're not essential for life. But, and they're only found, not found universally. They're found in particular species and so on. Plants use these secondary compounds. They substitute biosynthesis for behavior. They're not so good at running away. They're not so good at standing and fighting. They, they don't move around. They have to respond to their environment. They have to optimize their environment through chemical means, and this is what they do. These messenger molecules that the plants create are the way that plants mediate their relationship with everything in the environment, with other plants, with fungi and microorganisms in the soil, with insects, with herbivores, and of course, with humans. Because we are herbivores, and we do nibble on plants, and we depend on plants like everything else in the biosphere. Everything else that's not photosynthetic is essentially a parasite on plants, including us. So the purposes that they use are basically for defense. That's obvious. They make repellents. They make toxins. They make poisons. Many of them are very good at that. And a plant that makes that, maybe the message is, just leave me alone. I don't want to be molested. Leave me alone. You will regret it if you interact with me. But it gets more interesting when they send out a signal. That's what semiosis is. A signal might be a color. It might be, uh, it might be a fragrance. It might be some other sensory impression. A plant sends a signal. And often the signal is, let's come closer. In fact, let's form symbiosis together. Let's symbiose with each other. Can I turn symbiosis into a verb? Let's, sim let's do symbiose together and see what happens. Well, they do this with everything in an environment. This is, this is what plants do. But because we evolved in the same chemical environment, the biosphere, as plants, it's not surprising that plants have evolved quite a variety of, of psychoactive molecules that happen to be useful for communicating with humans. Us big brain problematic primates. 
So brain neurotransmitters and plant messenger molecules evolved from the same evolutionary precursors probably serve similar functions. It's not surprising then that plants contain a panoply of these neurotransmitter-like compounds. So natural psychedelics, especially mushrooms and ayahuasca, in the last, within the last few years, within the last decade, have kind of exploded onto the, onto the global stage. They've escaped from their indigenous, from their origins in the Amazon or wherever. Now they're global and everyone knows about them and they have an important message to send to us. Well, what is the message? Symbiosis, baby. Symbiosis, symbiosis is what plants do. They symbiose with everything in their environment. These relationships are mediated by these chemical messengers, these signal transduction processes. Humans are also symbiotic and largely parasitic on plants. A symbiosis, a human-plant symbiosis could be some, it doesn't have to be a psychoactive plant. Maybe it's something you like to eat, or maybe it's an aesthetic pleasure, or, or something else. Any relationship between a human and a plant for mutual benefit is a kind of symbiosis, including the relationships for, for psychoactive uh, interactions. So why do plants care about symbiosing with humans? For one thing, it gives them an evolutionary free ride. It protects them from the vicissitudes of natural selection. We kind of take it under our wing, the plant, and we grow it and we nurture it and we take care of it. So the plant, you know, is protected for as long as, you know, until we succeed in completely toxifying the planet, you know. But until then, these domesticated plants have, you know, a free evolutionary ride. Of course, you can turn that around, as Michael Pollan has brilliantly done, and said, who's domesticating who here? Maybe the plants have domesticated us to do their bidding. That's kind of the way I like to think about it. So let's make a proclamation. Let's do this right now. Any human has the right to engage in symbiosis with any other organism. This should be articulated as a basic human right Symbiosis, for those of you that are vague on the definition, it's the close association of dissimilar species, often for mutual benefit. And we can turn it into a verb, to enter into symbiosis. So the right to have symbiotic relationship should be proclaimed as a fundamental human right, not only a fundamental human right, but a right of our non-human symbiotic partners. Well, recent developments in uh, Oakland and Denver represent a, uh, a step in the right direction. The decriminalization of magic mushrooms, and in the case of Oakland, the decriminalization of all psychedelic plants and fungi. This is the right idea. The irony of this is the notion that any organism can be criminalized is absurd on the face of it. These organisms are not criminal in any sense, although we may be criminal for trying to criminalize them or eradicate them. But this exemplifies the attitude we need to change and that psychedelics can help us change. The notion that we have the right to declare organisms criminal and thereby proclaim that they can and should be eradicated from the face of the earth bespeaks an incredible arrogance under whose authority do we make these claims. This attitude exemplifies one of the major character flaws of the human species, the notion that we are superior to nature, that we own it, that we have the right to destroy it. This is the sickness that we suffer as a species, and we are seeing the consequences of that as we face accelerating global disaster. Psychedelics are the cure for this misguided notion. Psychedelics are the way to bring us back to nature. 
Natural psychedelics can be thought of as medicines for the soul. They heal not only individuals, but also societies, ecosystems, and ultimately the planet, if we are wise enough to heed their message. Two of the most important and widely used of the natural psychedelics, psilocybin mushrooms and ayahuasca, have sort of stepped up to the plate and taken on this role of Gaian ambassadors. These Gaian ambassadors bring an important message to our species, a very simple one, wake up. The rest of the 20th, only a fundamental shift in global consciousness, a reframing of our relationship to nature is going to save our planets. Psychedelics may be the only catalyst that can bring about this global shift in consciousness while there is still time. Because if you haven't been paying attention, time is running out and we have to get straight and we have to do it quickly. So, a couple more questions here to bring. I didn't know how to integrate them. I'm just putting them in at the end, but a couple of questions. What about the plants? Natural psychedelics are endangered due to over-harvesting often, and preservation of these species and their habitats is a moral obligation for all of humanity. For one thing, there are undoubtedly new psychedelics, undiscovered psychedelics in nature that are waiting to be discovered or that could be discovered. This is important. And the development of psychedelics as clinical pharmaceuticals carries moral and ethical obligations. As these psychedelics become commercialized and turns into pharmaceuticals, there's a danger they'll become just another drug and they'll, we'll lose this close symbiotic connection to the biosphere, which has already been severely damaged due to our recklessness. Due to our exploitation and over-harvesting, many of these plants are disappearing from the wild ecosystem. Not only that, the indigenous cultures that rely on them for spiritual practices are in danger of losing the, the cultural and spiritual integrity because they'd have to have the plants to, to do that, to have those practices. The developed world has to collaborate with indigenous societies to ensure that psychedelic species are protected, that the habitats are preserved, the genetic, genetic diversity of natural psychedelics is preserved. There's great potential to discover novel natural psychedelics, but their development as clinical pharmaceuticals carries moral and ethical obligations. Chiefly, one thing to avoid is biopiracy. The notion, because we've been doing it for too long, we need to develop a consensus that theft of indigenous intellectual property and indigenous genetic resources should not be tolerated. We have to develop mechanisms for introducing reciprocity and giving back into this implementation. And I would call on the investor community, particularly, you have a particular responsibility to do this. Corporations that develop pharmaceutical psychedelics should be required to set aside funds for species and habitat preservation, as well as for maintenance of cultural integrity for indigenous species. The other question that I wanted to raise, what about the plants? Well, what about the people? What about access to psychedelics? Uh, as these are commercialized, as these are reduced to crystals and capsules, what happens to this age-old symbiosis between people and plants? Turning our backs on psychedelics, which not only sustain life, but tie us together, with the community of species is exactly what we should not be doing at this critical juncture in the career of life on this planet. As psychedelics become approved for clinical years, what will be the impact on access to these medicines? Psychedelics are not only for the treatment of mental disorders, they can be used for what Bob Jesse has called betterment of the well, personal spiritual development, exploration of consciousness, and so on. 
What laws or regulation will apply to such non-medical uses? Who gets to decide what kind of uses of psychedelics are legitimate? Okay, so psychedelics are brought into the clinic. You can go to a clinic, a clinical setting, and consume pharmaceutical psilocybin in a few years. What is that going to cost? Probably a lot. Probably most people won't be able to afford it. Probably your insurance is not going to cover it for quite a long time. So is clinical psilocybin something only for the elites, only for the wealthy? What if you just wish to use natural psychedelics like mushrooms or ayahuasca? Maybe you don't like synthetics. Maybe you prefer natural psychedelics. Is that going to be prohibited? The use of a natural psychedelic? Once clinical psychedelics are available, am I not going to be able to walk into my backyard and pick psilocybin mushrooms and enjoy them in a natural form? We need to think carefully. We need to think ahead of time how we're going to deal with this before the clinical approval becomes widespread. And psychedelics have been under the stewardship of these indigenous people for thousands of years, even though they were vilified and condemned by the Western world. Now that the psychopharmaceutical, biomedical, industrial complex exists and is about to take over psychedelics, there exists a moral obligation to ensure that indigenous practices are allowed and encouraged. They can be done safely. Uh, indigenous people have been using psychedelics for about 10,000 years before there was an FDA around to tell them that they couldn't do that. You know, and so we need to tap into that wisdom. And, uh, you know, we need to we need to pay attention. We need to pay attention to indigenous peoples. It's not just the psychothera it's not just the, the uh, psychotherapeutic paradigm. We can bring that together with shamanic practices, create a fusion of these, and create something that is really much more powerful as a therapy, much more powerful than you know, lying on a couch with eye shades on, listening to classical music. There's nothing wrong with that but it really doesn't get to the depth that you can get to with a little different uh, kind of approach to it. So uh, we face a lot of problems when it comes to trying to integrate psychedelics into our society, into medicine, and yet maintain the respect and the reverence and I dare say the sacredness of psychedelics. So uh, I've got to close here with a little bit of Shameless self-promotion. I have incorporated a nonprofit called the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy. And the mission <laughs> the mission is that it's to be a catalytic nexus for the transformation of global consciousness. And it sounds a little bit hubristic to call it the McKenna Academy, but a lot of people have told me. Okay, this is your idea. You need to step up and identify with it. So I am. But that said, it's very collaborative. I'm looking for good ideas from all kinds of sources. What will it do? The McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy will explore modern and traditional practices, ideas, and technologies that foster the understanding of nature, consciousness, the cosmos, and their interweavings with humanity. The Academy's mission is to advance a symbiotic and evolutionary partnership with the entire planetary community of sentient species. Such an alliance will help catalyze a global transformation of human consciousness, creating a new philosophical and ethical paradigm whose values are in harmony with, rather than in opposition to, the natural order. The McKenna Academy is conceived as a psychedelic mystery school in the spirit of Eleusis, the first psychedelic mystery school to exist in the Western world in 1,500 years. The Academy provides a real-world, scalable approach to address today's most vexing problems. So... We can, uh, so that concludes my talk.
Thank you again for listening. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.